You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Course. I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, again, coffee, but we're going to talk about Australian coffee and talk uh, with a founder of a brand that's making a lot of headway here in the States. So my guest today is Nick Stone, who's the founder and CEO of Blue Stone Lane Coffee. So welcome, Nick. You know, first I wanted to, to start, you know, you started out in a totally different careers before you got involved in the hospitality industry. So you originally started out at Australian football and then you veered to finance. So how do you think, you know, that those two careers helped you prepare you for the hospitality industry? That's a very interesting question, uh, but it certainly has been an eclectic <laughs> journey. Uh, you, on, on sort of face value, you would say that there's not an incredibly a lot of you know, correlation between being a professional sportsman and then working in uh, sort of investment banking and then and then uh, founding a, a premium coffee and cafe lifestyle brand. But what's quite quite interesting is I think this applies to the majority of businesses that they're underpinned by transferable skills related to uh, teamwork and EQ, um, how you can align together to to produce something that's really magical, whether it's a special uh, a special product or a or a service. And um, as it related to more specifically hospitality, where I had no experience prior to opening Bluestone Lane in, in mid-2013 while I was still working in banking, it was really about this dedication to customer centricity uh, and overlaid with this real obsession I have with being a part of high-performing teams. And I just realized to deliver a premium service in a very consistent way, you need to have that ethos that you're continually improving. It's incremental gains every single day. That's very akin to being a part of a high-performing sports team where you train every day to improve and you're trying to find an edge and you're constantly working at your game. So despite it, it, it seeming that um, they're, they're certainly – quite divergent industries, there is a lot of correlation with how you operate and how you and you build a culture and a team ethos. So that held me in good stead, um, being being a, a former athlete and then working in financial services. Obviously, that also gave me great insight into the financial acumen and business acumen and how you can grow and, and, and stay profitable and continue to create value. And being that you didn't have any hospitality experience, what was it about the industry that attracted you? I think more than everything, I, I had this unfulfilled need. In Australia, it's a land of independent coffee shop and premium cafe operators. The espresso culture began really in the 40s. It, it predates really when espresso coffee was commercialized in the US by about 40 years. And none of the big brands are there. And none of the big brands have been successful. And that's, and that's um, despite Australia having... You know, the 13th biggest economy in the world and a significant propensity to spend, a very affluent um, country. But it, it, it's because there's this independent movement where the coffee that's been provided is of very high quality. There's a huge focus on fresh, healthy, uh, made-from-scratch food, nothing processed, um, a, a clear commitment and um, interest in curating 
atmospheres and spaces that um, transform you, that provide this element of escape. But most importantly is this sincere dedication to service, that it's not about being, not about having a transactional relationship where you have customers. It's, it's about having an experiential reciprocal relationship where you have locals, where the proprietor knows their locals and the local knows a, uh, a fair bit about the proprietor and staff that work there. And that harmonious relationship, that recognition, that, that true human connection is such a big part of the Australian coffee culture. And, and they use the word indispensably called coffee, you know, getting coffee, let's grab a coffee. But what they really mean is let's go to a, spa, a, a place where we can connect with other people, where we can socialise, where it, it facilitates that that. Uh, that connection. And in what ways is the coffee itself a little different than what we expect here on, in America? Well, I think if you look back at the history, Australia obviously was a, is a British colony and um, we transitioned from a tea-based drinking society to espresso when we had mass migration from, from Europe uh, pre and post World War II, particularly Southern Europe. Uh, and the Italians and the, and the Greeks and the Maltese uh, they brought their espresso machines and they were used to drinking espresso coffee and they landed and uh, they had a significant influence, particularly in Melbourne, uh, which is a very cosmopolitan city, very multicultural. And uh, there was this gyration from, from tea to coffee and the whole notion of getting coffee and, and having a break and uh, socialising, that was certainly um, brought across from, from Italy. And uh, so when we think about our coffee, we, we don't have drip. Drip's not a, a part of the market whatsoever. So getting a hot joe, as you know it in the US, is, is not part of the, the, the common way of people drinking coffee. Uh, it, it's, it's, I would say, 95% espresso. And now you see the emergence of cold brew, which is obviously a, a new innovation. Um, in addition, as I said, none of the big chains are in Australia. So Starbucks, Pete's, Costa Coffee, uh, Cafe Nero, Duncan, none of those brands are in Australia. It's an independent model. So you have a very, very high quality offering because it's driven by these owner operators uh, that that dedicate their whole life to ensuring that uh, they provide a wonderful experience. So the coffee quality is very high. There's that huge emphasis on fresh food and curated environments because they are independent and no two look the same. But a huge part is the relationship. And that's what I missed and, and that's what inspired Bluestone Lane. I missed going to my local where I felt special, where I'd walk in and even if I didn't order anything, it was just this moment in time where I felt a, a great sense of connection and that I was a regular and um, that there was real recognition and I could see that was happening uh, all over the States and particularly in New York where I'd moved to from Melbourne. People were having this really deep connection with their Manny and Petty and their wash and fold laundry mats and they knew the, the proprietor and there was this great amount of banter and connection and warmth. But the coffee, getting a coffee was very transactional. I just thought there was a terrific opportunity to, to do something different and alternative and I could see that this younger demographic were very interested in, in better quality experiences and better quality product. So how important is that authenticity to the brand growth? 
I think it's tremendously important. I think it's tremendously important for for all brands, their real purpose and authenticity. I'm, I'm a student of of commerce and business, but I'm particularly very interested in uh, brands and and brands that have stood the test of time, and often the luxury brands that have extraordinary amount of heritage and purpose, but they do have real authenticity. They often refer to that they were they're from you know, New York or Paris or Tokyo. Uh, in the case of premium coffee culture, I think it's undoubtedly Australia is at the at the very forefront, and Australia, New Zealand, and uh, there's certainly a global brand around Aussie style cafes. So for us, we've got to remain um, heavily linked to 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 that influence of the Australian cafe scene, but we obviously reshape it for it to be applicable and to be successful in the U.S. market and how it's run and operated doesn't it doesn't need Australians to do so we just um, understand very clearly around the purpose of the brand the purpose was provide real human connection and a premium product and commitment to health and you know, that there's no diverging from that and we're proud of it but um, you know I think it's essential for all brands and Bluestone um, is is one of those that falls in the bucket that we're really proud of the lifestyle orientation we've created and linking to Australia is is a key part of that. So why did you select the name Bluestone Lane? Well, the name actually uh, is is a homage to the cobblestone laneways in the middle of the Melbourne Central Business District. So there was a number of lanes behind an office building I worked in uh, that had these little hole-in-the-wall coffee shops and bars and these intriguing, almost mysterious uh, lanes and um, that that was very much the organic origin of the name. I came up with it. It was uh, bluestone, as in bluestone cobblestone uh, uh, laid, and lanes, as in laneways. And Melbourne's known for its laneways. It has colourful art. It has different interesting names. You have ACD Lane and things like that, and uh, named after obviously um, a very successful uh, Melbourne rock and roll band. Uh, so yeah, it was very organic and it had to link to, to what's ultimately influenced the whole concept and my heritage and my wife's heritage. So tell me a little bit about the menu. Um, what are some items, some of the coffee items, some of the food items that I would expect to see, um, if I visited? Our menu is heavily influenced by ensuring it, it's it's not only premium in its taste and aesthetics and quality of ingredients, but it's made fresh and it's made fresh to order. We do not order in processed food. We do not have food that comes in plastic wrappers and you put in a microwave like a lot of uh, large mainstream scale cha- uh, coffee chains. Uh, we, we use fresh ingredients, but we create dishes that are that are more sophisticated for breakfast and lunch, but are still accessible, heavily plant-based. And we were really, I think, at the biggest influence, if not at the very forefront of the introduction of an authentically made flat white, a real Australian-made flat white, and that beverage obviously originates from Australia and New Zealand, and then the avocado smash. So when we launched this in 2013, you couldn't get avocado smash or avocado toast anywhere, and you certainly couldn't find a, a well-made, authentically made flat white. Not not a not what someone calls a, a flat white, which is more like a hybrid between a cappuccino and a and a latte. Um, a, a true flat white with the the right amount of microfoam. 
And uh, when we launched in 2013, it was like revolutionary. Now, looking back on it um, eight, eight years later, it's quite ubiquitous. You can get avocado toast everywhere. I, I think even some of the, I think even Starbucks tried to roll it out. You know, we, we were certainly, I think we put those two products on the map and we were fortunate we did it in New York City. And in New York, as we know, is the center of, of the media world. And if you're successful there, uh, it often can catch fire quite virally. And um, that's that was the case with us. And But, you know, our menu has a real commitment to made from scratch, quality ingredients, health, and um, and we want it to be absolutely delicious, but more sophisticated than simply uh, waffles and pancakes and and toast and sugar laden cereal. That's that's not really in our uh, in our mo. So, what was and what has been you know Americans um, you know response and reactions um, you know to the coffees and the menu. Very, very positive, and we're fortunate that we're still here. And uh, the fact that we've opened over fifty locations in that time period, I think, is is reflective of that. Our menu is uh, both beverage and food is is curated to to for it to be compelling for a particular core customer, a core demographic. It's not going to work for everybody, but for who our core customer is and who we want to focus on. Um, in the priority, it doesn't mean that we 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 welcome everybody, but we certainly you know have to focus on who our core is because they're going to be the customer of now and in the future. Um, it's been received really well. Uh, I think there's certainly a huge amount of interest from younger millennials, Gen Ys, into craft, all things craft, whether it's craft beer, craft coffee, craft cheese. Uh, and and there's this huge influence, I think, in in plant-based eating, vegan eating, or just just being more conscious with your your meat and dairy intake. And Bluestone's really been shaped around those principles, and and a real principle to to healthy healthy nutritious eating. It doesn't necessarily mean to be every item needs to be low calorie. It needs to be a piece of of um, of rabbit food like lettuce or kale, but it, it's just being very mindful and just being really conscious of the ingredients and not and not overcook or processed or fry or, or roast and and that raw sort of clean orientation has held us really well. So um, you know we we're we're very encouraged and we hope and we believe there's a significant amount of runway over the next coming coming years. And your wife was a big uh, proponent behind all of the menu items. And your brother also works uh, with you. Um, so what is it like, um, you know, building a brand with family involved? Yeah, well, my, my wife effectively is a de facto co-founder. Uh, and well, at the stage we started Bluestone Lane, we were just dating. Um, we, weren't, we weren't engaged. But she comes from a background uh, in, in health and science. So she was studying osteopathic medicine until um, she met me and I wanted to move to New York and she ended up moving across and uh, and uh, modeling, but continuing her study. She couldn't do osteopathic medicine because of the doctorate. So she transferred to biomedical science and finished that and then went on to, to, start, to study nutrition. And, and uh, you know, she's got a really incredible appreciation for holistic health. And this is probably well before, you know, now it's, it's very common. But when we came to New York in, in 2010, um, you know, she was really at the forefront of being very conscious about um, eating and mental health and physical health and just living a real purposeful and fulfilling and in, and uh, engaged life and she was such a big influence on um, 
the the way our brand should feel, the way it should look. And she headed up the menu committee for the majority of of our, our life cycle. So she was she would put forward and coordinate um, menu changes, and there was four a year, and um, so it had a huge influence. And then my brother Andrew heads up our marketing uh, business and and uh, division. Has done an extraordinary job. Very tough coming into an organisation and and reporting to a sibling. A lot of cases it doesn't work, but in our case it's been a magnificent relationship, and um, we have a we have obviously we're very close, but we have an amazing business relationship where we can speak very candidly and and transparently with each other, but um, you know have it not blurring into our personal life, which which has been so greatly appreciated. And he he came on board full time when I elected to go full time. So for the first three years of Bluestone Lane's history, I was I was still working in banking full time, and Bluestone was my my side my side job and. Um, when I elected to, to join in mid-2016 to take a break from banking to go all in, um, Andrew came across from a premier advertising agency in Australia and he had a, a terrific understanding around brand building and partnerships and activations. So he brought the skill uh, that we were looking for and um, it's been a really harmonious relationship and a very effective and powerful one. And now that you've been doing it a few years, do you have any regrets? Do you miss banking, um, or you think it was a good transition for you? In in in, in April uh, last year, <laughs> in the middle of the pandemic, I definitely had some thoughts. Wow, you know, I could I could be banking. I could be sitting at home working on my computer and not. Have... No, I I don't really have any regrets. Your life is about evolving. It's about learning and. Uh, you know, who, uh, you know, who knows what the way things could have worked out, but I'm, I'm extremely grateful. I'm so proud to be part of this team. I think that's the thing that, that continues to blow me away is um, I, I was always thankful, but the level of gratitude just went to a new, went to a new paradigm uh, as a consequence of dealing with the, the COVID-19 pandemic and just the extraordinary complexity of the challenges and the velocity of challenges that we've faced in a 12-month 12 12 period. We're nearly coming up to one year since it really began when we had a catastrophic fall in our revenue that was completely outside of control. Um, we have a precarious footprint, heavily uh, focused on, on inner urban city areas, New York, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., L.A., and uh, Boston, Massachusetts, Toronto, Canada. These, these are the markets that were, were in the most um, challenging spot and uh, you know had immediate sort of shutdown and people were fleeing the city and then you had you know extraordinary amount of COVID cases so um, I don't regret anything I, I think it's all part of life and learning and uh, you know I think that there's even though I've had three careers I still feel like I'm, I'm early and uh, there's a lot to learn and I love working with people and and I love the experience and the feeling and and I love the tangibility that consumer provides when you do something well uh, your locals or your, your customers tell you straight away hey I, I love going to Bluestone it's a part of my daily ritual it's not just coffee it's connection and for us we got that in spades during the pandemic and I'm so proud of our team to 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 go to work with that courage and foster those relationships and maintain that continuity no matter the headwinds we were faced. So prior to the pandemic, what were 
some of the key challenges facing the brand? Prior to the pandemic, it was certainly about scaling and scaling a premium concept. And I think more than anything, it was linked to the service proposition and the team. I think that was the biggest element we were struggling with. The the food and coffee product was, I believe, very consistent and we could access uh, you know, quality real estate and we I think we had a, a great sort of advantage on our design front. But when you're hiring 100 to 200 people a year, maybe 300, and uh, you have natural attrition in the hospitality industry, it, that that's where a lot of the stress lies. And I just don't think that we had our operational controls and our steps of service and just ways of working down pat. We were missing someone who had a lot more experience and uh, we, were, we were just missing a leader that could own that. In, in many cases over the last seven years, uh, I have had a variety of roles from, from uh, in addition to being the CEO and, and founder. And one of those includes the chief operating officer and CFO and chairman of the board. And you know, I love wearing multiple hats, but I think that the COO role in hospitality, I, I, this is my first hospitality experience. So I was learning myself and I, I didn't have much role modeling. I, I'd become a student of the industry and you know, reasonably effective, but I think there's a point where you, you need to bring in people that have more experience in particular verticals. I'm, I'm comfortable in a lot of the others, but I think that that was a position we needed. So when we, we made some, um, some really terrific hires in our operations team, in our people team, and continue to, in our digital team, and continue to evolve the the executive. So uh, we got it in actually, fortunately, in a really good place prior to uh, COVID, and that team just stepped up and and led everybody in such a positive and effective and agile way for the last uh, twelve months. So I'm very grateful that we had that better down. It would have been extremely hard if we didn't have it in place prior to COVID. So talking about the pandemic. Um, what has the pandemic experience been like for the brand and for you? Um, and how did you kind of pivot um, operations to, you know, contactless, curbside delivery, um, but still kind of work with your staff and, and your guests and keep them engaged? Well, we, we basically designed the service proposition based on a, an unrelenting focus on the health and safety of our team and our locals. So that was that was the... That was the core aim and then so that was the starting block and how we could maintain that and still operate framed our decision. So we, we made a call very quickly when really COVID uh, hit New York when I was actually there. It, it really started to spiral out of control I think around March the 12th, 13th. I flew back from the 13th to, to California and by the 16th, we were 100% contactless. So we were very fortunate that we had the app, um, the Bluestone Lane native app built and it was stable. And uh, from that point in time, if you wanted to order from Bluestone Lane, you had to do it via your phone. So there was no, there was no engagement or, or transactional or, or it was completely con contactless. We were still encouraging human connection but from that point in time it was contactless and we also restricted access to any one of our locations we didn't want locals or any external parties going into our locations because we wanted to isolate the risk to our staff of, of commingling with others and um, 
It was incredibly uh, well embraced. Um, it, we were very fortunate that the adoption and it was quite natural. I think it's also because of our core customer being quite digitally native. And um, it resonated really, really well. And it, it, it transformed our business from being very much, uh, uh, you know, a trend, uh, in some respects, you know, heavy credit card transactions and arriving at the point of sale and ordering to really being an, an order ahead business. And over the next and, and over the, the corresponding sort of six months, we continued to change. And we, even when we added, um, when we had in outdoor dining for our cafe concept, uh, we had the technology built. Uh, we did a sprint over a two-month period so that you would order from your phone. And what's really interesting is everything goes through one single ecosystem. So if you're a Bluestone Lane uh, rewards member and you order at our coffee shop for order ahead or if you dine with us or you uh, and you order at the table uh, and it's run to you or if you have a coffee subscription or you do a, a one-off e-commerce purchase, all of that, all that spend, all those engagements uh, are rewarded in our in our program. So, in our loyalty program, so we're we're particularly excited. I think the probably the most exciting part about Bluestone um, and its scalability is just this digital infrastructure and this tech enablement, and augmenting our service proposition so uh, it's safe and uh, that it's progressive and ultimately. Uh, local customer and we, we were very successful in balancing uh, the tech orientation and still ensuring that we're a human connection centered brand we are we're a brand built on service and uh, you yeah, know I'm, I'm really excited and optimistic about the future and I certainly don't think it's going to go back to the old ways that's for sure what do you mean the old ways how do you how do, and how do you envision things are are going to proceed the old ways, I mean, it's it's a bit like analog. Uh, old ways, I mean, walking up to to a counter and ordering from a, a paper menu. I, I just Bluestone Lane, I will not be that business for us. Our coffee shops will certainly remain mobile only. So how you'll order is via your phone or a digital kiosk, and we will still spend um, most of our time focused on the human connection and the engagement and the service, but. We're just going to remove that role of someone standing at the POS and taking someone's verbal order. Uh, the The world has changed, and delivery, curbside pickup, order ahead. These are the themes that have unrelenting momentum, and uh, people are conditioned now to ordering on their phone, ordering on their computer, and and then ordering via digital kiosk. So for us, that that is the future in that business. And as it relates to cafes, it's a similar thing. We we will check all of our guests in, have a concierge service, ensure that we're being really smart with uh, contact tracing and just management of the venue for 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 health and safety reasons. And then um, ultimately, uh, our local will order via their phone. And, and what's so incredible is they get to see the menu items in great depth. They can they get all the ingredients, they can get all the information and access that a paper menu can't provide you. And I think that's really empowering. And in addition, most of the people that dine with us, they dine with us for less than 45 minutes. It's, it's on the way to something or it's post something. So it might be on the way to the gym, might be on the way to school, uh, might be a quick break with a, with a friend for a 30-minute catch-up rather than a two-hour dinner. And having the ability to order you know, instinctively uh, on your phone is incredibly powerful because if you want another coffee, you just press a button and it'll arrive. You don't have to look for the a server and try and flag them over. And if you're time sensitive, 
you know, I think that that's, that's a really valuable sort of tool that you've got. Um, you have that autonomy. So that's, that's sort of where I'm talking about where it's, where we feel that the industry is going. And, um, I, you know, I don't think it's going to go back to the, to the way where it was heavily reliant on, um, someone ordering verbally. I think that's, that's changed. So can you talk a little bit about, um, your at home products and the coffee subscription services? Yes, so the the at home business has grown transformatively over the last year. It's not not surprising, but a massive growth, and uh, it's being really underpinned by two things. Certainly, uh, a, a big interest in making coffee at home, espresso coffee at home. So we're seeing a huge amount of volume increase in in people buying um, whole bean because they've bought espresso machines and they're interested in making coffee and and uh, you get a lot of utility actually making a coffee at home. It's it's a pretty cool cool thing um, to compliment going to your local and getting that human connection. And uh, you know, I think I think you know what we're saying is a lot of people are drinking more coffee now, and uh, instead of just sort of having one two a day, they're now having you know two to three a day, which which is uh, which is good for us. And I think um, I think you know it's it's great because they're getting some sense of human connection after being starved of for so long. Uh, we also um, are seeing big demand in making cobra at home, but it's a bit more complicated and finicky. I, I, you know, that that market's a bit more challenging, I think, because there's a lot, there's quite a few steps involved, and I think people would just find it easy to get cobra made by a specialist. But where we're also seeing a huge amount of growth is in uh, capsules, and we have Nespresso compatible capsules that are 100% biodegradable and 100% compostable. So they're we we were never going to go into capsules unless it's truly environmentally friendly that there's going to be no impact on the environment and we found a product and um the capsules have have exploded they've been they've been really really popular and uh, i think they trust our brand they trust how much time we spent into the formulation and the partner we worked with uh and uh you know they've been received really well so Transitioning from single-use and even um, uh, aluminum packaging to compostable and biodegradable is a uh, is consistent with our focus on sustainability and EC, ESG. And uh, you know, I think there's there's huge amount of opportunity there, and you'll see a lot of that growth. I believe not not just our home channel, but also in our grocery CPG channel over the coming year. So one of the things that you uh, put in place during COVID was uh, a way to give back. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the Fuel for Heroes initiative? Sure. This has always been a huge part of who we are and our brand, our connection with the community. We want to be known as a, a real valued amenity, a, a core part of fabric of the communities in which we operate. Fuel for Heroes was started through uh, an organic commitment from the team that we want to support our first responders and healthcare heroes as much as possible. And even though our business was dramatically impact, we, we still had enough stores where we could we could remain active and engaged. And it, it brought terrific purpose to the team. And what we ended up doing is over a three month period, we donated 50,000 coffees and food across 30 hospitals uh, across five states. And it was very much a bottoms up ground roots initiative all of deliveries were facilitated by a team. You know, I, I did deliveries myself. 
Um, my brother Andrew launched the campaign with the first delivery uh, to Elmhurst Public Hospital in Queens, which was ground zero of um, uh, really ground zero of COVID when it when it reared its head in in New York and. That we, it was just a really great thing to do. It brought a lot of purpose and utility and despite our challenges and, and despite the hardship that our team and our locals were experiencing, we, we, could, we could help these heroes who are, who are providing us the hope, this opportunity to find a way out of this and back to um, normality to some extent. So it was a really wonderful thing and we provide the opportunity about halfway through the campaign for our locals to make a donation. And what we did is um, we matched it, but not just one for one. We matched it three to one. So if uh, if one of our locals bought a, um, a healthcare hero a coffee, we matched it with three coffees, and that's why we got to fifty thousand um, so quickly. So um, it was it was a huge a huge achievement, and and I really appreciate the our locals and our communities getting behind it as well. Um, it was great. So you had a piece in the New York Times um, that delved into your pandemic diary, um, and you were very honest, um, really, about the brutality of 2020 to the business. So why did you um, want to do that opportunity, and what response have you received? Well, it was obviously very unique, and I was flattered that um, that the Times were interested in running a profile on me. You, you know, you're never going to turn it away. <laughs> readership the way it is and we're obviously headquartered in New York City but um, you know I think that the interview was uh, well the diary it was really just a diary me taking notes every day was a true honest reflection of the situation and who I am uh, I'm, I'm a particularly I think transparent person and um, straight shooter I think that's a it's a it's a deep cultural value in Australia to tell it how it is and uh, to be very transparent and frank and um, it you know it was it was um, I think people when they read the article uh, had a better appreciation of how challenging it was because the 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 rate of speed in which COVID and the governments reacted was just extraordinary. We're talking about you know less than you know in some cases forty eight hours notice. And um, that's been that's been a part of the last year. That's been a feature that governments um, have acted very quickly when they've seen spikes and without any notice, they'll tell you, "Oh, you no longer have indoor dining. You have no longer outdoor dining." Um, and you know, you just try and operate with as much agility and positivity as possible. But it's in incredibly hard. You have to have real resilience. And uh, you know, I think that I've learned so much about myself. Uh, and our team um, in in trying to not waste this crisis and and make it an opportunity which you can learn and evolve and you come out better and uh, you know that's that's what we've done and I'm, and I'm, I'm proud of what we've achieved but uh, yeah it was it was it was obviously a terrific article and um, and I'm I'm glad I was able to provide a pretty pretty realistic uh, um, you know on the on the main street insight into what was going on. So one of the, the phrases that you used, and you were just talking a little bit about this, was um, how a crisis demands urgent innovation. Um, so can you can you go say what you meant by that, and maybe give other examples of of how that worked uh, and how that came into play during the pandemic? Yeah, well, I think that, that what what happens when it, it's really really tough, and and 
at a level in which that is certainly atypical, not a not a bump in the road, a, a real you know a real crevice that you're trying to um, navigate. Uh, there's this feeling if you can change your mentality to feeling like you have an unbridled amount of opportunity to change and to try things and to rapid prototype. And that's where we got to when when our sales fell 90% in a two-week period and we were facing this existential crisis, this liquidity trap and all these other health and safety concerns, we realized that this was the time to, to um, throw the cat amongst the pigeons and try for something that um, we may have been timid to do. And I think being liberated and um, you know, having a completely blank slate to try things that you, you would have thought of being too risky during um, normal times is quite extraordinary. And, and that's what I mean. I mean that when, when it's really tough, you, you've got to act. You have to, you have to change your mentality to get positive and optimistic. You need to get people around you that inspire you and that, that bring energy um, and uh, are looking at things, you know, that are um, half full. And, uh, and, and what we did is that exactly that. We just realized just sitting here and doing nothing and writing it out and closing all our stores and waiting for it to, to somehow magically disappear or, or um, you know, and recede wasn't going to be the right strategy for us because we were going to we, – we have so many locals and so many of our team rely on um, their employment with Bluestone Lane. And we realized we just had to do whatever we can to keep some of our stores open that had a chance of, of getting close to just break even because there was certainly a point where we, we had to determine how we were going to survive given um, the liquidity challenges that, that – us and pretty much everyone in the hospitality face. So, but you know, when it is, you, when you have a crisis of the magnitude, why waste it? Use it, use it to to reflect on your business, to make some big changes, and to constantly challenge your value proposition. And that's exactly what we did. And uh, the team stepped up. You know, I, I sort of facilitated, but but the team came up with the ideas. And then ultimately, the most important thing uh, in, with any business is execution. So everybody can have a great idea, but it's all about execution. I think that that's what uh, Reid Hoffman said uh, in a in a podcast I listened to, and that statement um, has rung so true. And uh, the team executed incredibly well, uh, safely, and uh, maintained the health of our team and our locals. And we pivoted the orientation to be far more tech augmented and and digitally native. And it gives us a chance to be even more successful coming out of this. So you, as you were talking about how, you know, it's more digital and mobile um, at the forefront um, and that's kind of forever changing things. Um, how else, in what ways do you think that the escape experience um, and the guest experience will change? Well, I think, I, I don't think it's going to change that much uh, except just the way you order and, and the, I think the steps of service change, but the one thing I do know is there's so much pent up demand for people to to go out and start dining again and visiting their local that I don't think that's part of it that we needed to change as dramatically. We want our team to develop relationships with their locals. We want it to be reciprocal. We're not interested in sort of transactional coffee and and uh, one one word responses. We're we're interested in in having real relationships. 
and connection. And, uh, you know, I think more than anything, people have realized how much they miss dining. They miss restaurants. They miss their local coffee shop. They miss their friends, socialization, human connection. They have a lot of connectivity. Uh, but, you know, I think there's a lot of externalities there. There's only so many apps and text messages and messages and, you know, photos you can send to each other. I think people are really missing and craving real tangible human connection. Uh, and uh, we want to be, we're going to be a big part of that, facilitating that and, and, and part of that, that reversion back to what a new normal is going to look like. And I'm very optimistic that it's, that it's going to be here in Q2, Q3 with the, with the improvement of the weather. And, um, you know, I'm glad that we've maintained uh, the continuity of the business and our brand and our commitment to human connection, uh, despite all the challenges. And honestly, despite, um, the government restrictions and COVID generally saying, hey, um, you shouldn't focus on human connection. You should focus on just fulfillment and uh, reducing any contact. Um, you know, I'm, we're not, we're not going to be sort of in that game per se. We'll, we'll have elements that, that are obviously contactless and uh, you know, in, augmented with things like delivery, but, but we are, uh, we're about making people feel good, making people feeling special. And uh, that's who want, who, the type of candidate that joins our team, and that's the local that we attract. So, what's next? I mean, where where are you growing? Um, how do you how are you kind of going to expand the brand? Um, are you considering franchising? You know, kind of what are the next steps for you? Right now, we're still focused on company owned in the U.S. Internationally, we would certainly look at franchising or more, probably more specifically licensing. We do have some licensed stores uh, also coming down the pipeline in the US in, in airports. But uh, for us, I think that we're really acutely looking at uh, the real estate market. There are, there are unique opportunities right now and uh, we're just seeing if we can land some of those. So we're probably evaluating 20 or so sites and you probably have a 25% um, hit rate. So hopefully we can pick some up and grow out of this. But we've had to reposition our portfolio. Some of our coffee shops in in the real business district areas in Midtown Manhattan, for example, or financial district, uh, whether it's in, in uh, San Francisco or in New York, we've had to really assess like when will these these stores honestly come back. And in some cases, we've just had to permanently close because we don't believe that people will be back occupying office buildings for for another year. And to have those stores closed for two years just doesn't make sense. So, you know, we're reorientating our portfolio towards suburbs and towards suburban areas, so residential areas. Uh, that's where we see the most amount of growth in the short term. But that will be a reversion back and there'll be a steady state, but I don't know when it will be. But but without a doubt, work from home is is a, a change that's um, intelligible. It, it's not going to go away and, uh, you know, we, we've got to reposition our brand to ensure that we're, we, we, we're open and we're convenient to where our locals spend the majority of their time. And that's going to be increasingly more at home uh, than, than in the office, I believe. Perfect. Thank you so much. This is great to, to learn about the brand and everything that you guys are doing. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.